everyone, welcome back to QSR Nation, your go-to source for food service marketing and business strategies for success. Welcome back to QSR Nation. As always, we have Josh, Beth, Grant, Tony's out today, coming at you from the PFS Brands National Headquarters in Holtzum, Missouri, to talk about food service marketing and business strategies for success. Today, we're pumped. I mean, Beth is like literally bouncing off the walls over there. <laughs> uh, we have author Fran Hauser here today, and we're really excited to have her. Fran Hauser is a longtime media executive, startup investor, keynote speaker, and best-selling author of The Myth of the Nice Girl. She's held senior positions at some of the world's leading digital media businesses, including People, InStyle, Entertainment Weekly, and AOL. AOL. I mean, that's so long, that's so that's long awesome. ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now a startup investor who largely invests in female founders, Fran was named one of Business Insider's 30 women in venture capital to watch in 2018. Fran and the myth of the nice girl has been featured on a wide range of outlets, including NBC's Today Show, CNBC, People, Fortune, Time, Fast Company, Oprah.com, Business Insider, L, and many more. The Myth of the Nice Girl was named Audible's Best Business Book of 2018, which is huge, and one of America's Best Business and Leadership Books of 2018 as well. Fran is a frequent speaker on women's leadership and writes a regular career advice column for Refinery29. So Fran, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. You guys are awesome. Oh, appreciate Thanks. it. You know that you've arrived when you've been on Oprah. Just, yeah, or Oprah.com, yeah, no, like featured, huge, man. Yeah. That has to be one of the best introductions <laughs> we've had so far on this podcast. That's your icebreaker <laughs> for everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be honest, I can't believe I read that without messing up. I, I know, I'm really proud of you. Like, yeah. <laughs> you did good. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, Fran, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up where you are today? Sure. So, you know, professionally, I've had... A wide range of experiences over the course of my career. You know, I've worked in corporate finance, I've worked in media, startup investing, and I've worked for big companies and small. Um, the one common thread, though, throughout all of those different chapters is the way that I've advocated for women in the workplace. And, you know, it really started out informally through mentoring younger women and being a sounding board for them. I then started writing about women's leadership for publications like Forbes and Refinery29, um, and then this ultimately led to my book, The Myth of the Nice Girl, um, which now has been translated into eight languages, wow. uh, which is amazing. It's just so incredible to see the global reach um, that it has now. And the book actually also spawned my speaking practice, which is where I'm spending a lot of my time now. I've been doing a lot of virtual talks. Um, I've done over 150 talks since the book came out. And, you know, really the message in the book, and we're going to get into this more, Beth, but the message in the book is about how you don't have to choose between kindness and strength, and that actually the most effective leaders lead with both qualities. So that's really kind of the, the key message um, that I was looking to get across in the book, and um, I'm just so happy to be here with you guys today to, to talk more about it. Awesome. Awesome. 
Well, in The Myth of the Nice Girl, Fran deconstructs that the negative perception of what niceness that many women struggle with in the business world, I for one have always struggled with that. But if women are nice, they are seen as weak and ineffective. But if they are tough, they're also kind of labeled as a bitch. Whoa. Whoa, I know, language there. <laughs> now I'm just saying. Um, but Fran proves that women don't have to sacrifice their values or hide their authentic personalities to be successful. So Fran, can you just tell us what inspired you to write this book? The real inspiration came from just so many conversations that I've had um, over the years, especially with younger women, where they would ask me questions like, how can you be so nice and still be successful? You know, how can you be so nice and, like, still make it to the corner office? Um, There's this myth that nice girls don't get to the corner office. Um, And so I spent so much time really giving advice around this, topic. Um, And then I wrote a blog post for Forbes that ended up being one of the most popular blog posts in their mentoring series. And I started hearing from women all around the country, um, basically just saying how much they're struggling with this. You know, this idea of like, if I'm too nice, I'm a pushover. If If I'm too strong, I'm a bitch. And I just feel like I can't win. So for me, it was really that blog post that validated that there's a real pain point here that needs to be addressed. Um, and that was the moment when I knew I, I needed to write the book. You just, you have so many valuable insights. And like I love your anecdotes that you have in the story just because it's there's every single time that you would go into one of your um, one of your life anecdotes, I'm sitting there going, Oh my gosh, I've I've been that I've been there. I feel the exact same way. And so I encourage every single woman out there who just feels like they're they might be struggling or they just want to be more empowered about about their natural abilities and their authentic self to go and read this book because there's so many other women out there that do feel the exact same way that you do, and you just give great insight and just great advice and just you know it's I've been able to put it into practice over the last couple of weeks and I I mean I know Josh and Grant are tired of it because I'm ready just to voice my opinion on everything but it's I've never felt more empowered until after I read your book and so um I just really encourage everyone to go out there and read it awesome oh my goodness that makes me so happy um I can't tell you I mean so a couple things I want to say to that actually the first is that it was really hard when I was writing the book, like when I started writing the first chapter, I found it really difficult to share my personal stories where I had failed, you know, where something went wrong and it didn't quite go the way that I wanted, or maybe I made a mistake. And I, my editor actually, you know, he read the first chapter and he called me and he said, look, you're doing a great job. Like, talking about other women and sharing their stories and you've got research in here, but it's your name on the book. Like you need to share your personal stories. You need to get vulnerable. And if you don't get vulnerable, then the book is not going to be relatable. And I really needed to hear that advice from him because once I started opening up and just really sharing my stories, like the good, the bad and the ugly, I do think that it made the book so much more relatable because like you said, Beth, it's like, oh, I've done that or, you know, I've been there. I can totally relate. So, um, so that was a really important, I think, growing and learning experience for me. Um, and then the other part of it is I really, it was really important to me that the book is actionable, that there are practical tips. Um, I, I 
can't tell you how many times like I would read a section of the chapter and I would stop and say, you know what, like I need to actually share scripts that can be used if you find yourself in this situation or, you know, what are like three things that you can do? Like, so I really worked hard to make it actionable. So it always makes me happy when I hear, um, you know, what you just said, which is like you have, you've implemented some of these things into your daily work life, which is just so wonderful to hear. Yeah. Right. That makes a lot of sense, especially the part about, you know, sharing your own um, personal experiences can make it so much more relatable. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Fran, and so the, the, the word nice is actually in the title of your book. And you mentioned in your book that um, the word nice is emotionally loaded for many women. Um, can you speak a little bit more to that and how you define being nice? Yeah. So you know what? If it's okay with you guys, I think I'm actually just going to read the definition from the book, um, which I had here because we worked so hard to to come up with this definition. Um, So here's what what I say in the book. So when I'm speaking of someone who's nice, I'm describing a woman who cares deeply about other people and who wants to connect with them, who is guided by a strong sense of values to do the right thing. She's considerate, respectful, and kind. There's a warmth and magnetism about her that draws people to her side and makes them feel good in her presence. At work, she's fair, collaborative, and generous. Instead of competing against other women, she elevates them by sharing the credit for a job well done. She has a deep, unshakable confidence that there are plenty of opportunities to go around. So there's a lot in there, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot to, to unpack, but I really wanted the definition to show strength and power, um, even, you know, words like magnetism, um, confidence, you know, generous, um, because again, like I, I really do believe that you can be both nice and strong when you're... I, this is what I think. I think that when people hear the word nice, sometimes they think of someone who's a people pleaser or a pushover or maybe somebody who's passive. Right. Um, and, you know, that's when that doesn't work. Like if, with people pleasing, being a pushover, being, none of those things work, you know, because I think that's when people start taking advantage of you. They start, like, looking all over you. But if you can be nice in a way where you are empathetic, you're kind, you're collaborative, you're generous, you're all of those things, and you're, you're still, you know, strong, to me, that's like the ultimate combination, you know, in, in, in a leader, because you're going to build a team, you know, who really wants to follow you. Those people are going to want to follow you. They're going to be loyal to you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've heard it before that some people always think that when it comes to leaders, they say that you shouldn't care too much. And you bring this up in your book of, I really don't think that you could ever care too much as a leader because that brings out your empathy and everything else that people are looking for in a leader to be able to develop that connection and that relationship and want to learn. And if you don't care enough to really get that connection and understand your employees that are below you, like, how can you mold them and build them up on those different blocks to make them the best person that they could be? Yes, and you know what? They're going to work so much harder for you if they see that you really care about them. Um, and you can, you can care about your team and still have high expectations of them. 
You know, it's it's not like, okay, I care about them so much that I'm just going to let things slide. No, like you can care about them and still have high expectations. You can still be driven and you can, you know, motivate them and have momentum and have operating rigor. I have to tell you like a, a, a funny story. My, this amazing woman that I worked with, she was my coach when I was at Time Inc. And she did like all of this personality testing with me where she would have me do like take all these surveys and answer all these questions. And what she found was that, you know, I am such an operator. Like I really do. Like I love operating. I love plans. I love timelines. I love process. You know, I love goals. Um, she said that if I did not over-index in empathy, that I would be a tyrant because I love operating. So, you know, like, I really am. I'm, like, a natural operator. But the good news is that, like, I have that empathetic side, you know? So it's like having both, it just really, it works together well. Well, empathy is my number yeah, one strength. Sure. So, <laughs> and all these different assessments. So, it's always kind of the running joke around here of like, oh, there's Beth being empathetic again. But it's a good thing. And so, and now I'm like, read this book because now you understand where I'm coming from. <laughs> well, so can I just tell you one thing about empathy? Sure. That I learned from doing research for the book. Um, so, from all of the research that I did on negotiating effectively, what I learned is that. Empathy is the single most important factor to getting to a win-win outcome when you're negotiating. Because when you're empathetic, you're putting yourself in the other person's shoes and you're asking them what's important to them. Like what value do they need to create out of this partnership? You're showing that you really care about what's important to them. So when you do that, that allows you to build trust um, and then you know, when, when there's trust, that's how you build a deep relationship. So empathy is absolutely, like, the single most important factor when you're negotiating. That makes sense because yeah. you'd feel bad if they got a bad deal. Then. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so um, we have talked a lot about just the authentic personality, and you really go in-depth in your book. But can you just talk about what does it mean to embrace your, your authentic personality? So for me, what it means is that when I look at myself as a human being and I think about like what my values are in my personal life, um, so for me, it's things like kindness and, you know, compassion and empathy, like those are all values that are really important to me as a human being. Showing up authentically at work means that you don't check those qualities at the door when you go to work, but that you actually bring them with you. And I believe it's really important to show up in a way that's authentic because when you do that, you're going to be more confident and you're going to be more like comfortable in your own skin. I think sometimes we try to take on these like different personas that aren't like really who we are and it never feels good. You know, it just, it, it doesn't feel good and we, we don't end up being as effective as we want to be um, because we're not being true to ourselves. So for me, that's really what authenticity is about. It's like really looking at yourself as a human being and saying, like, what do I value? Like, in my personal life, with my family, with my friends, with my, you know, what do I value? And like, and bringing those to work with you. Right. And I'd say um, being authentic helps to build that trust with your uh, co-workers and stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. 
definitely. Yeah, for sure. No, we like Beth said, we talk about authenticity a lot on the podcast, so that's just great. Yeah. It all ties together. I uh, know we've already mentioned nice girls don't get the corner office stereotype. Um, during all your research and just life experiences, what um, what has led you to believe that is not true? And um, can you share some practical reasons why you should consider nice as a superpower? Mm. Well, let me, I'll share one story with you. I'll share um, a story from when I was working at Coca-Cola Enterprises. And I was very young. I think I was 27 or 28. And I was promoted into this really big, job. It was a director of finance role for a $500 million revenue division of the company. And I was going to be overseeing like 110 people. I mean, it was just, it was a big job and I was promoted over others who had so much more experience than me. And it was really a surprise. Like I was really surprised to get this promotion. And I remember talking to my boss and asking him, why me? And the reasons he gave were things like because you've been able to develop really strong relationships with stakeholders, you know, because you've built out this really incredible network and, you, and you're able to persuade people um, and influence people to get things done. You know, it's because you've built this loyal team that will follow you anywhere. Like everything that he was talking about, it was all about like relational stuff. You know, he didn't say anything about my functional expertise or competence or, you know, technical uh, technical expertise. It was all, like, relationship-driven. Um, and I think that was really the moment for me where I was like, you know what? Like, showing up as who I am at work, and I am the nice person. That's always, like, the first word that people use to describe me. Like, it's working, you know, it's really working because I've been able to develop these relationships and people trust me um, and I am able to influence people to get to get things done. You know, it's even like when we talk about, like, practical um, benefits of this. Like, you know, one example is when you work for a big company, um, the, the higher up you get in the company, the your success is really tied to how many resources can you get allocated to you, both money and people. Like when I was running digital at Time Inc., I was constantly going to the CTO and asking for resources, you know, and it was because I had such a great relationship with him that, you know, he was always willing to listen and he always, he always worked his hardest to like make it work for me, you know? So when you think about practical things like allocation of resources or, you know, just being able to, like, get a deal done or a partnership done. Like, these are all practical things that are really important, um, and they, they all come from, like, and stem from strong relationships. So, um, you know, for me, like, not only in myself, but I've seen other people who I really admire who are really incredible leaders. Like, those are the types of things that I've seen, that I've witnessed in them in terms of the way that they relate and interact with other people. They always do it from a place of kindness and, you know, good, good intention. Yeah, that's a good story. It kind of reminds me of one of our core principles here at PFS. Um, we say that, you know, every, every, every person is a salesperson. Um, and, and that 
you know, to be a good salesperson, you have to build good relationships. And it kind of sounds like that's why, you know, you were probably promoted to that position is because you had good relationships with both stakeholders and, and, you know, it goes towards your uh, coworkers as well um, and shows the importance of that. So, uh, all right. So um, back to your book a little bit here. There's a theme of kindness with strength that runs throughout your book. As a leader, how do you balance kindness and strength? So it's, you know, it's really interesting. Like, I've, I've obviously, like, reflected on this a lot. And one of the things that, like, an insight that I had about this as I was writing the book is that, for me, kindness is really about intention and strength is about execution. And, you know, as an example, like, if you're making a decision, the kindness part of it is that you're being inclusive and you're asking people on the team for their opinion and their point of view, right? The strength, though, comes in when you have to make the decision. Like, and you know, like, some people are not going to be happy, right? Mm -hmm. But you make the decision, you communicate it back to the team with gratitude, you know, thank you, everyone, for all of your input. It was so helpful. I know some of you are not going to be happy about this decision, but I really believe that this is the right decision in order for us to be able to move forward in, in a positive way. And, and the strength really comes in sticking to that, like sticking to the decision, like standing firm in your own two shoes. Not that you can't revisit the decision down the road, right, and be flexible and be adaptable, but in that moment, it's having that strength of, okay, I, I have to make this call. It's great that I've, like, listened to everybody, right? I've, I've included everyone. But at the end of the day, I have to make the call. And I think that's, like, a really good practical like, example of how kindness and strength can, can work together in, you know, in the workplace. No, that's awesome. I think, yeah, <clears throat> it all comes down to trust, too. It all comes down to building that trust. Um, and why do you think trust is so important when it comes to being a leader? Yeah, so I really think that um, we talked a little bit about this before. Like when when somebody trusts you, you know, when you've earned their trust, um, they are going to be more likely to want to have a real relationship with you. I mean, I can't imagine having a relationship without trust. Right? Like, then it's, it's superficial. Mm-hmm. There has to be trust. Like, there, I have to trust that you have my best interests at heart, you know, when we're having an interaction about anything or we're negotiating or whatever it is. So, I, so trust to me is like, oh, my God, I just, I don't, it's, it's the foundation, right? It's the foundation of any strong relationship. Right. Yeah. It's so important. Well, with trust and professionalism, you know, it's just like you said, with those relationship skills, you, we, as an employee, you may not agree at all with the decision that your leader might be making, but if you trust them enough, you always will have that faith that, you know what, they always have my back and no matter what, you get that support in the long run and they're more flexible and they're more adaptive to understanding if things go right or if they go wrong because they had that trust in you and that you would never would have tried to turn them down or steer them in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great example, I think, of sort of that dynamic of a manager and their team mm-hmm. and how trust is so important there too because 
as a team member, the way that you're going to look at it is I, I trust my manager. Like, I really think, you know, I'm sure that they were very thoughtful about this, you know, um, and that it wasn't a decision that they just made willy-nilly, but they really did think about, you know, the company's objectives, the team's objectives, um, and, and goals and how, you know, how we can best meet those. So, yeah, I, I love that example. Well, here's something that I've been trying to implement, and this is a huge part of your book, is how you determine, how you became determined to stop saying sorry. Because I know that as a lot of nice girls, we always say I'm sorry about everything. So can you share the specific steps that you took to stop saying sorry to everything? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because this was like such a, an afterthought when I when we were writing the book. It was something that kind of like I added in at the last minute, this whole, like, sorry part of this whole apologizing part of the book. And it really ended up being one of the most popular parts of the book. And, you know, basically what happened with me was I had a colleague who called me out, and, you know, she said, you know, you apologize a lot. And I really did not realize that I was doing that. Um, I didn't, I didn't, actually, I didn't believe her. So I went into my inbox, and I typed the word sorry into the search field. And, like, hundreds and thousands of emails came back where I used that word. And I, I reread a lot of those emails. And what I found was that I was apologizing for, like, really trivial things. Like, if it took me, you know, more than a half an hour to get back to someone, you know, or if I couldn't, if I couldn't make an event that I was being invited to. Um, and it put me, what I realized was that it really put me in a position of weakness. And by the way, but what I found out later was there's all this research that's been done that shows that women do indeed apologize more than men do. It, it's just a fact. <laughs> so what I decided to do was I downloaded this Chrome extension called Just Not Sorry, and it literally alerts you anytime you <laughs> type the word that's sorry. Awesome. You get this, like, alert. <laughs> a little scary in the beginning, but... You know, it's just sort of like a reminder of, like, is this really the word that you want to use or do you want to say something else? And the other thing I realized was that mo- most of the time, um, it really made so much more sense to use thank you instead of I'm sorry. So, you know, thank you for your patience. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for thinking of me. Instead of starting out the note with I'm so sorry I'm not going to be able to make it you know, or I'm so sorry it's taking me so long to get back to you. Thank you is just so much more positive. It has such better energy. Um, and so that was something else that I really started to do, was just being really intentional about, do I really, I mean, sometimes, yes, you do, you should be sorry, right? If you've done something to hurt someone or, right, there are times where it's appropriate to be sorry. But most of the time, I really just wanted to say thank you. So I made that shift, which was, amazing. I mean, this was years ago. Um, it was amazing. And then the other thing that I did was the colleague that had originally called me out on apologizing too often, I actually asked her at work to be my accountability buddy and just like, let me know. Like, if we're in a meeting together, just like kick me under the table, you know, just kind of help me break this habit, basically, because we all know how hard it is, right, to, mm-hmm. to break habits. Um so yeah, so that those are just like some of the things that I did to break that habit that were really really helpful. I think that's awesome. I, I don't know if I 
somewhere, got that from you in an article or something, but I've been trying to do that too for like the last three or four years for sure. I even told Beth that before. Yep. Like I hardly ever, like, unless it's like something I really messed up on, I will yep. never hardly say sorry in an email just kind of do because of that too. So Yeah, and I'm sure like in the statistics, like you mentioned, show that probably, yeah, women probably say it more than men. But yeah, every t- like whenever I think about it, if I'm writing sorry in email, I stop and think like, yeah. Before I accept the blame, is there actually anything that I did wrong before I say sorry? I think sorry should be used if you if you made a mistake specifically. Yeah. But if not, then you can you can use yeah. it, use a different. It's almost it's really like, become like a throwaway word. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's kind of like yeah. a it's kind of like a yeah. It just it's a, it's a filler word sometimes. Filler. But, but mm-hmm. it unintentionally implies weakness or mm-hmm. um or a mistake. Yeah. So yeah. that's an interesting concept. Um, so anyway, uh, you talk a lot about uh, your personal mentors. Um, I guess in this book as well, Beth tells me. Yes. Um, what, uh, what, should we, what should we keep in mind as we look to build mentor-like relationships with people in our lives? So I, I really think the most important thing about building a, a you know mentor relationship is to really allow it to grow organically. Because um, I've actually had women come up to me who I don't know and who have asked me to be their mentor. Like, they'll come up to me at a conference, like, after I speak or, you know, if I'm, like, signing books. And um, usually it doesn't it doesn't really work that way. It's really more of a, like, it's almost like dating before you get married, you know? It's like having a coffee and just kind of getting to know each other and, you know, seeing, like, is there a way that, um, that we that we can help each other, you know, where it's mutually beneficial. Um, I think that's also a big part of the mentoring relationship. I don't really see it as a one-way thing. You know, I think it, it can definitely go both ways. Um, and I also feel like, for me, over the course of my, you know, life and my career, there are times where I've really tried to be intentional about, like, what type of mentor do I need? You know, like, if I love where I'm working and I want to keep accelerating, I want to just keep, like, climbing that ladder, you know, within the same company, then it really makes sense to have a mentor who works there and who has power, who's in a position of power, um, because they, they will help you, right? They can champion you. They can sponsor you. If you're looking to get out of the industry that you're in and move to a completely different industry, then it's really a different kind of mentor that you're looking for, right? It's probably somebody who can really help you understand um, that industry and maybe open up their their network to you. Um, so I do think it's important, like, to be intentional about the type of mentors, but then, like, really allow those relationships to grow organically. I think those are really the those are the, the types of relationships that will endure. Right, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of the word organic as well. Like, you can't really force the issue with a mentorship. I don't think it has to yeah. be kind of you know both sides. It's like any relationship. Yeah, you, you have to. Yeah. You have to. Let have it to have grow. that mutual interest. There. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I can be your mentor, Grant, if you need help. Oh, would you? <laughs> <laughs> that's good because like you got the older perspective and I got the younger perspective. Oh. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, this is beautiful. There yeah. you <laughs> Okay, so other than um, finding a mentor, what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to women in the workforce? Okay, so right now, just like, you know, really given where we are in the world, I I think it's so important for women to set boundaries and to really be intentional about what they say yes to and what they say no to. 
So I've just had like so many friends who are just really struggling. You know, they 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 are overwhelmed. They have a lot on their plates, um, and I'm I'm having more and more of these conversations lately around like I just can't do it all. I can't keep up. And my biggest advice is when you get asked to do something, you know, whether it's like joining a project or a committee or maybe it's even like being invited to an event, which, you know, most of those are virtual now. But whatever it is, it's an ask of your time. So I would really be thoughtful before you respond, especially like if it's in in an email, avoid that knee-jerk reaction of saying yes. And really ask yourself, like, is this something that really matters? Is it going to move the needle for me in my career? Is it, um, is it visible work? You know, is it something that's going to be really good for me as I, as I grow in my career? Um, or, you know, is it just something that's really going to give me joy, something that I want to do? Um, but if the answer is no, then it's totally fine to say no. Like, I actually want women to say no more. That's what I really want. I want us to be protective of our time and our energy. Um, you know, and women, like, sometimes they'll, they'll say to me, but how do I say no? Like, I don't know how to say no. And I, I always say to them, like, keep it short and sweet. It's, it's, you know, thank you for thinking of me. I'm currently working on XYZ, like whatever your priority is, so I'm not going to be able to participate. And then just wish them the best. Like, we don't need to over-explain by writing three paragraphs, you know, of why we can't do something. Like, so just that's my biggest thing right now, and it's something that I'm just, I'm talking a lot about this with women, and I'm really encouraging them to just be very <clears throat> mindful and very protective of their of their time. It's so true. Like, actually, Josh and I just had this conversation, I think it was last week, um, because you bring up the four-by-four model in your book about doing, you know, the top four things each month, and you reevaluate it every single month. And Josh has been, you were Eric Wallman's The Focus Project, and he's doing... Yeah, he's doing, yeah, a a a area of life to focus on for one month a year. Yeah, and so I highly suggest every single person to, to really look at the things that you have going on in your life and figure out what is the most important to you during this season or during this time, whatever it might be. And you can reevaluate it every single week, month, whatever it might be. Um, but I think that's a really great way just to help you set boundaries. And I also always think of the quote too, when you say no, of like, you can still say no and I can still be your friend. Cause there's yeah. so many people that just think that if I say no, they're not going to be my friend anymore or they're going to yeah. hate me. And you really have to let go of that emotional connection to the word no when it comes to setting your own boundaries personally and professionally. Well, it's so bad. I think you bring up a really good point because one of the things that I found from just talking to so many women is that it's really complicated, like, why we have such a hard time saying no. Like, I've literally discovered, like, 15 different reasons. Like, it's everything from people-pleasing to FOMO to, for some, maybe being a little bit of a control freak and just, like, wanting to do it themselves. Like... There's lots of different reasons, and it's really important. Like, I would really encourage you to gain awareness of why. Why do you have a hard time saying no? Like, if it is people-pleasing, then you can check in with yourself. Like, when before you, you know, hit send on that email saying yes to something, you can ask yourself, wait, am I in people-pleasing mode right now? Like, just having awareness of your why, why you have a hard time saying no, 
it's half the battle. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. I also like the point of you saying if you say no, we also go back to not saying sorry as well. You could be like, no, you don't have to apologize for not being able to do yeah. something. Say no, thank you for the opportunity, things like that. Right, because it was unsolicited, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. No, that's great advice. Um, yep, so now we're going to get into the part of the show where we always ask our interviewees three questions, the quick three we call them. Um, so we'll kind of go through those. Um, so what is one marketing or business trend you think is going to be important in 2021? Hmm. So, okay, well, it's an understatement, I guess, to say <laughs> that people are burnt out yeah. and people are struggling. Like, we just, we just talked about this. Um, so I think that, you know, organizations that can help people's mental wellness um, will be well-received. I mean, whether it's, like, physical products or digital content, like, you know, anything that's really about, like, how do you just help people feel better, you know, like, emotionally, mentally, um, I I just think that's going to be, it's going to be important, and I think it's going to be a really, a big trend. That's interesting. And that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a good point too. And it's something way different than what we're normally hearing yeah. um, on normally on that question. It's funny. If you look back last year at the, que- when we asked this question, pretty much nobody was right because then coronavirus <laughs> happened. Yeah. So, but no, uh, that, that's really interesting. Um, all right. So the next question, uh, what is one marketing or business book that you would recommend? So actually a book that I just recently finished that I loved, it's, it's brand new. I think it just came out in September. Um, it's called The Cobbler, and it's Steve Madden's memoir. So Steve Madden, the, the, the shoe guy, the yeah. shoe designer. Um, and what I really love about it is that, you know, Steve, throughout his career, was so brilliant in terms of finding the white space, like always, like, discovering, like, the next shoe trend. I mean, just incredible. Like, he built a whole industry, basically. Um and even just his ability to discover talent, like he discovered people who ended up becoming, you know, CEOs of other companies. Um, and he's got a fascinating story. I mean, he went, you know, as a child, he was undiagnosed um, uh, ADHD, with ADHD. He suffered from all different types of addiction issues. He went to jail. Like, remember the whole Wolf of Wall Street connection yeah. that he had? I mean. Yeah. So it's a fascinating story, just really about resilience and tenacity and um, just him as a business person and a leader. It's really interesting to just kind of hear his stories and like how he leads. So I would, I would highly recommend that book. That sounds like a good one. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay, so the last question that we have is what is one piece of advice that you would give someone thinking about either starting their own business or starting their own franchise? You know, I would say to be really honest with yourself about the type of business that you're looking to build. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, is this a business that is going to support your lifestyle, you know, which is awesome, you know, a lifestyle business, or is this a, a really big business that's disruptive and innovative um, and the goal is to exit in seven to ten years, you know, to sell the company or to have it IPO. Um, the reason why I think this is really important is because I feel like a lot of founders automatically assume when they're building a business that they want to take in outside funding, they want to take in venture funding. 
Um, and, you know, venture funding is really only for the second example, right? It's for the big businesses um, with a goal of exiting. And I think most people actually are looking to build a lifestyle business. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually amazing. Lifestyle businesses are great. If you can build something where you really enjoy what you're doing and you're you're generating enough profit to support your lifestyle, like, that's pretty great. So just being really honest with yourself about the type of business that you're looking to launch um, before you even start thinking about whether you should be taking outside funding or not. That's really great advice. Yeah, it yeah, is I've never good. had that before either. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so, Fran, um, so Fran, where is one place if people want to contact you, reach out to you, learn more about you? Where can they go for that? So my website, which is just franhauser.com, um, and Instagram is at Fran underscore Hauser. Awesome. No, we appreciate you being on the show today. Yes, yeah, so Thank you much. for having me. Yes. You guys are awesome. All right. Well, I will be toting your book, and I will constantly <laughs> be sharing it some more because I really, I, I just, I cannot recommend this book enough. So. Yay. Thank you for that. <laughs> and for all of our <laughs> listeners out there, if you want to reach uh, hear more of our podcast, you can find us at qsrnationpodcast.com. Beth has the socials. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at QSR Nation Podcast. And um, be sure to be looking for our videos that we do, just uh, highlighting and spotlighting what our uh, future podcasts are going to be. That's, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Messed up with that one pretty good. Uh, that's all good. Uh, Fran, once again, we appreciate it. Uh, thanks, thanks for Fran. being on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And awesome. for all of us here at QSR Nation, we'll talk to you next time. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of QSR Nation.